Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how a task force prevented the COVID-19 vaccines from being hacked. Because, yes, that was a real and valid concern. Plus, the sometimes controversial history of timekeeping at the Olympics and the AI-based innovations introduced this year. And how the garbage industry is a lucrative one in the U.S. because, of course. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Over the last year, I've covered the stories of a number of unlikely companies that found themselves playing a possible role in the supply chain or cold chain for the COVID vaccines as they developed. Like the San Diego company that sells saponins to root beer and Slurpee manufacturers and was being considered as a supplier for the adjuvant in Novavax. Or the brief period of time when some healthcare centers were maybe going to buy up Dippin' Dots proprietary ultra-cold freezers to keep the Pfizer vaccines cold enough. Links to both of those episodes in the show notes if you missed them. Those two companies are relatively large, but there are a lot of other smaller companies who are among the only producers of certain key elements of the leading vaccines. And one thing a lot of those small companies tend not to have? Cybersecurity. Enter the United States Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA's, COVID-19 Task Force. They were charged with assisting with security for the 30 major players involved in Operation Warp Speed. But the team quickly realized it wouldn't be just 30 companies. Each of those companies worked with other companies, had their own suppliers. They'd have to help protect all of them, and they'd have to identify them first, because any small break in the chain links could mean a disrupted vaccine rollout. Quoting The Verge, CISA senior advisor Josh Corman worked with colleagues like Michelle Holko, a presidential innovation fellow who worked with the task force, and Reuven Pasternak, another CISA senior advisor, who's also a physician, to develop a rubric that would help them identify those players. They looked for companies making products that were in short supply or couldn't be easily replaced, and companies making products that the groups making vaccines were highly dependent on. The group asked international partners to send them the names of any groups that could be important to the vaccine development process as well. Overall, the group identified hundreds of companies involved in the process that could have been risks. A lot of them are smaller. In some cases, they'd have fewer than 100 people and may not have traditionally looked at cybersecurity threats, says Bo Woods, another senior advisor at CISA. Because they were involved in the vaccine process, they were targets for hackers, but they didn't have the know-how to protect against threats. That's where we focused, he says, end quote. Or as Corman told The Verge of some of the smaller companies' lack of cybersecurity plans, quote, you could sneeze on that one company and they would be disrupted. And if they were disrupted, we'd be living in a very different world right now because they were so critical to those mRNA candidates, end quote. 
Fortunately, despite some initial skepticism from some of the companies when the government came knocking, the task force was able to develop a good relationship with those smaller companies and protect them from potential threats, of which there were a few. Some may have been false alarms, but others, like a phishing campaign targeted against the vaccine cold chain transportation, were thwarted soon enough to limit any damage. And who knows how many others could have happened had the task force just stuck to the 30 major companies and not dug deeper to get to the companies that really needed their help. With healthcare organizations increasingly the target of cyber attacks, this methodology and the trust built up between the government task force and some healthcare companies will be vital going forward. You know, I tend to think we're pretty ill prepared to withstand cyber attacks on vital services like healthcare and infrastructure, and I don't think I'm too far off or alone in my thinking there. But this was reassuring to hear of, you know, at least one very important case where cybersecurity efforts went right so far. So on Friday, Glenn, filling in for me while I was away, discussed a recent paper about rounding errors in timers that could affect the rankings of athletes in certain sports like swimming or running, which rely on precision timing. And that paper, published in the American Journal of Physics last week and Glenn's segment, raised the intriguing possibility that timekeeping devices with digital displays may not be displaying exactly the correct time, thanks to a whole mess of conversion issues that you can hear more about in Glenn's Friday episode, linked for your convenience in the show notes. And the paper even brings up the case of Michael Phelps and Milorad Kavik at the 2008 Beijing Olympics, when Kavik appeared to have won the 100 meter, but Phelps was announced as the winner by one one hundredth of a second. Now, the researchers don't go as far as to say that that was exactly a rounding error, they don't have evidence for that, but plenty of theories have proliferated online over the years. The most common theory points to the tie between Phelps and Omega, the Swiss watchmaker who have been the official timekeepers of the Olympics since 1932, and just so happened to have also been a sponsor of Phelps's in 2008. Whether there's anything to that theory, Omega is always hard at work improving the accuracy of their devices for the Olympics, and Wired recently wrote about the motion sensors, computer vision, and artificial intelligence helping Omega keep time at this year's games. But first, Wired shared some interesting tidbits about the history of timekeeping at the Olympics, which up until the formal adoption of Omega's photoelectric cell photo finish magic eye camera at the 1968 games in Mexico, was all done with analog stopwatches and human eyes and hands. At the first modern Olympics in 1896, Wired recounts how the marathon, a sport that takes competitors on a 26.2-mile path and takes nearly three hours to complete, was timed by a stopwatch being started at the starting line and then being physically taken by someone on a bicycle to the finish line where the same stopwatch was used to record the finish times of the winning runners. But once the photo finish magic eye camera was finally adopted in the late 60s and all Olympic timekeeping switched to electronic, Omega kept innovating. At the London Games in 2012, they introduced their quantum timer, which can go to a millionth of a second. But the challenge is not just precision and accuracy, it's also real-time monitoring of so many different kinds of sports. They aren't just tracking marathons and 100-meter swims, there's gymnastics, equestrian, handball, and now skateboarding and surfing. Wired in particular looked into how Omega has been innovating for beach volleyball. 
Quoting Wired, Omega Timing's R&D department comprises 180 engineers, and the development process started with positioning systems and motion sensor systems in-house, according to Alan Zobrist, the head of Omega Timing. The goal was to get to a point where, for multiple sports at the 500-plus sports events it works on each year, Omega could provide detailed live data on athlete performance. That data would also have to take less than a tenth of a second to be measured, processed, and transmitted during events so that the information matches what viewers are seeing on screen. With beach volleyball, this meant taking this positioning and motion technology and training an AI to recognize myriad shot types, from smashes to blocks to spikes and variations thereof, and pass types, as well as the ball's flight path, and then combine this data with information gleaned from gyroscope sensors in the player's clothing. These motion sensors let the system know the direction of movement of the athletes as well as height of jumps, speed, etc. Once processed, this is all then fed live to broadcasters for use in commentary or on-screen graphics. According to Zobrist, one of the hardest lessons for the AI to learn was accurately tracking the ball in play when the cameras could no longer see it. Sometimes it's covered by an athlete's body part. Sometimes it's out of the TV frame, he says. So the challenge was to track the ball when you've lost it, to have the software predict where the ball goes, and then, when it appears again, recalculate the gap from when it lost the object and got it back, and fill in the missing data and then continue automatically. That was one of the biggest issues. End quote. The system, according to Omega, is 99% accurate, but Toby Brecken, professor in computer vision and image processing at Durham University, told Wired he wonders if it will be as accurate across races and genders, something many AIs have failed at. No word on that yet, but if we have another Phelps versus Kavik situation, things could get sticky. But Omega says they've been working on a lot of innovations with AI that won't be debuted until the Paris Games in 2024 or the Los Angeles Games in 2028. So watch this space. You probably know that the United States is one of the most wasteful countries on the planet, generating 239 million metric tons of garbage each year, according to CNBC. More and more, when I talk to someone from another country who's visiting for the first time, they remark on how shocked they are at the ubiquity of single-use plastics here. But in a truly American move, we're not just one of the most wasteful countries on Earth. We have also turned our trash into a highly profitable industry. Quoting CNBC, It can cost about $1.1 million to $1.7 million just to construct, operate, and close a landfill. For this reason, private companies have replaced municipal governments to own and operate the majority of the landfills across the U.S., I think it's because the trend has been to go larger and larger, so the small neighborhood dump can't exist because of the regulations and the sophistication of the design, said Deborah Reinhardt, a member of the Board of Scientific Counselors for the EPA. So we are tending to see large landfills, which do require a lot of investment up front. End quote. To make back some of that investment, landfills charge trucks tipping fees when they drop off their loads of garbage, which are priced at an average of $53.72 per ton. And like everything, those fees have risen over the years. After adjusting for inflation, CNBC notes a 133% increase in average tipping fees over the last 35 years. So if you can organize it right and crucially foot that investment up front, you can make good money with a landfill. CNBC says gross revenue is about $1.4 million a year for small landfills and about $43.5 million a year for large ones. 
and two private companies lead the pack in the U.S., Waste Management and Republic Services. They own 480 of the 2,627 landfills in the U.S., now, I'm familiar with the Waste Management logo, but mistakenly thought that it was part of the city's Department of Sanitation. Turns out, it's a public company whose stock prices have doubled in the past five years. But private and municipal landfill companies do have other ways of making money, and some of them are even okay for the environment. There's landfill mining, quote, a process of extracting and reprocessing materials from older landfill, end quote, as well as mining for energy using the methane gas produced from decaying trash. Quoting again from CNBC, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, landfill gas generates about 10.5 billion kilowatt hours of electricity every year. That's enough to power roughly 810,000 homes and heat nearly 547,000 homes each year, end quote. Now, landfill mining for things like precious metals is kind of hit or miss. You can make a lot or make nothing, but mining for energy can at least get the landfills some good subsidies from the EPA. So, welcome to America, where even our trash is a booming industry. But as Sahadat Hossein, professor of civil engineering at the University of Texas at Arlington, concludes to CNBC, quote, Waste is not a waste, but it's a resource. The world has limited resources. If we don't reuse and recycle these, we cannot talk about a circular economy. That will always be a talk in the tabletop discussion. End quote. We are in the midst of the final couple of weeks of the dog days of summer. And yes, there is an actual time period for that phrase. It's not just a saying. I did a whole segment on it last year, link in the show notes if you missed it. But in brief, the dog days of summer are from July 3rd to August 11th because that's the period of time in which the ancient Greeks observed Sirius, the dog star, rising and setting with the sun in the northern hemisphere. And they believed that the star being so close to the sun generated enough heat together to explain the sweltering long days during the that period of time. But that's not exactly true. Per National Geographic, the hottest days of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, while often in July and August, aren't always. And even when Sirius rises with the sun varies on your latitude. Plus, the way stars shift compared to the Earth's tilt and rotation in our view of the sky means that those dog days change a bit over time, especially over long periods of time. So the days they mapped out in ancient Greece are definitely not the same as they are today, and many years from now, the dog days will be in the middle of winter. Regardless of the various inaccuracies, it does feel like the hottest time of the year still right now, at least where I'm at, so I hope you're all finding ways to keep cool and safe, and if you live in the southern hemisphere, I am very jealous. But that's all I got for you today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs 
From technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.